Welcome back into the Original Gangsters podcast. I am your host, Scott Bernstein, along with my partner in crime, the doctor, Jimmy Bucciolato. And we're here for another episode of deep dives into the darkest nooks and crannies of American and international underworld culture. And uh, today, for the first time in a little bit, we're going to be without a guest. And it's just going to be Jimmy and I breaking down some breaking pop culture news when it comes to true crime and uh, real-life stories of the mob and the underworld and, and, and gangland culture. There's a lot of news that's been percolating, things that are going to be popping up uh, on your streaming services, at your movie theaters, and uh, things that are happening right now. So let's just let's dive into it. Uh, we're here. It's the uh, first week of April 2021, and... Um, I know this is a, a little uh, self-centered of mine, of, of me rather, but let's, let's, uh, let's tip off this episode talking about a project of mine that uh, has a lot of heat attached to it right now. My white boy documentary is trending on Netflix for the last week. It's been a top 10 Netflix um, selection since it dropped on the platform on April 1st. There's been over 12 million views of it in a five-day period, I think, The seven-day period total is up to like 14 million, and uh, it's it's surreal for me because this is a project uh, that's been a a, a, the whole story of White Boy Rick, uh, and we'll give you a quick breakdown of what that story is if you're unaware of it, but. It was really how I built my brand as a true crime journalist, more so than my reporting on the mafia. Even though that's what got me my my start, I wrote a book called Motor City Mafia, which was a big regional hit about the history of the Detroit Italian organized crime family known as the Toko Zerilli Syndicate. But, you know, where I really made my bones and really broke through as a crime writer and investigative journalist outside of just this metro Detroit area and started getting respect across the country was with my reporting in, in regards to White Boy Rick. I eventually worked on the Hollywood film, which was made a couple years ago with Matthew McConaughey that nobody saw. And uh, I have some very strong opinions about that film. I I don't think uh, it was well done at all. And I think it it was kind of a bastardization of the story. And as a result, my documentary, which was accompanying content to the Hollywood film, which was a Sony production called White Boy Rick with Matthew McConaughey, Bruce Dern, Jennifer Jason Leigh, and uh, starring a newcomer by the name of Richie Merritt as uh, as White Boy Rick. Um, I had a documentary called White Boy that accompanied it. And because nobody saw the film, nobody watched the documentary, even though when the documentary was reviewed and had gone through the festival circuit, it was critically hailed. Uh, It did very well in terms of um, people reviewing it and, and critiquing it. It was an entrant in the New York Film Festival, which was a big deal. And then it actually won the Detroit Film Festival back in 2018. But uh, it's really like none of that ever really happened. I mean, what's happened in the last week is like that never happened. Like documentary never came out. Film doesn't exist. You know, for all intents and purposes, for people that are consuming Netflix here in North America, the white boy Rick story is brand new as of April 1st because now uh, everyone's finally learning about the story that they probably should have learned about three years ago if things would have been done right, but they weren't. And, you know, whatever, bygones can be bygones, but now we're at a tipping point, I think, for that story where it's really gone viral now. Let me ask you about the process, if you can, before we get into the substance of it. Um, So the documentary 
that was a coordinated thing between the film studio? Uh, loosely. So the documentary was the first um, was first off the ground. We were doing the documentary from I want to say 2014. The film got off the ground in 2015. When the film got off the ground, and again, I was involved in both. So I was an executive producer on the documentary when we started filming. And then there was this feeding frenzy for the film rights that took place throughout most of 2015, where you had Universal Studios or Universal, uh, the, the movie company, come in and they optioned a story that had been written by a New York reporter by the name of Evan Hughes who came in Detroit for a couple days back in 2013, I believe. Um, I hooked up with him and took him around town and introduced him to a lot of people. He wrote a story called, uh, I want to say it was like The Trials and Tribulations of White Boy Rick or something like that. And that dropped at some point in October of 14. And in October of 14, at the same time that our documentary was starting to record, Universal came in and optioned that story that Evan Hughes had written. Yeah, The Trials of White Boy Rick. Trials of White Boy Rick, okay. And they actually, they assigned it a director and a producer. I believe Joe Kaczynski was uh, going to be the director. He He's directed some pretty big movies with Tom Cruise. In fact, I believe he's directing the new Top Gun. And then the producer was Scott Stuber, who now I believe is working at Netflix, but at that point was an independent producer. So uh, that looked like Universal was going to make the movie. In early 2015, Sony came into the picture and wanted to work directly with Rick and myself on doing an adaptation that would be in competition with the Universal project. And then in the spring of 2015... Darren Aronofsky's production company called Protozoa threw their hat in the ring. Darren Aronofsky, uh, The Wrestler, Requiem for a Dream, The Fighter. So he came in. And so, so in the spring of 2015, you had three movie studios all fighting for the right to do the Hollywood version of the film. Then in August, Universal dropped out and Sony and Protozoa combined forces. And the movie was then in pre-development. At that point, the filmmakers and the studio reached out to the documentary and we kind of cobbled together a loose arrangement. And again, I was involved in both, so I was kind of helping with that. Um, Documentary was just nothing but a, a pleasant experience. We broke a lot of new ground, did a lot of great interviewing, great storytelling by the, uh, by the director, Sean Reck, and... The film was just an utter disaster. So did the doc come out? I'm sorry, I'm confused. That this chronology here, the documentary it came out first. Came out first, right? And the idea was maybe that that would that they wanted the kind of effect it's having now, <laughs> right? But I think I think the film. I shouldn't say I think. I know the film was very slow. Mm-hmm. The film was supposed to come out first, then the documentary. I but see. the film, because of the director, who fancied himself an auteur and, you know, someone that thought he was the next Steven Spielberg or Marty Scorsese because there was a lot of people in Hollywood telling him he was the next Marty Scorsese or, or Steven Spielberg and he really believed it and carried himself like he was this, like, you know, 40, 50-year veteran of Hollywood when, in fact, he had only done one movie and a lot of commercials and was my age. I mean, he's, he's our age. Mm-hmm. So he, he was just incredibly diva-ish as a filmmaker, and because of that, the filmmaking process took a long time. And what should have been probably an 18-month production process turned into a three-year production process. So the film 
came out six months after the doc, when in fact it was supposed to be the film coming out first and then the doc following six months later. So what happened with Netflix? Why wasn't the documentary out earlier in terms of like on this kind of platform? Well, it was on major platforms, which makes you wonder how strong those major platforms are. I it's see. been on Amazon Prime for two years. It's been on Stars for two years. Right. It was, on, it was an Apple iTunes exclusive for a year. Right. And obviously those three platforms combined don't reach the level of, of exposure that Netflix brought it in a matter of 24 hours. I mean, it's so remarkable. I can't think of a parallel where a film doesn't do that well and two or three years later, whatever it is, a documentary about that topic blows up. Right. And I have all these people that are being like, well, why hasn't there been a movie about this? <laughs> <laughs> like there was with Matthew McConaughey. Right, no one They need to make that. a movie out of this. Yeah, right. So right. I think everyone thought initially that the success of the film was going to bring attention to the doc. Well, now three years later, it looks like the success of the doc might bring some attention to the yeah. film. I was just going to ask, I mean, obviously we're speculating, but I wonder if this will now uplift that film after the fact. People will be searching for it and wanting to see this story acted out now. There's good and there's bad. The bad is that they're going to go and search a film to see actors acting the story out, and they're going to be disappointed because <laughs> it was, it was right. just, again, it was an abomination of the story. But I think because this is, you know, there's a whole new life cycle to this story now, I'm pretty confident whether or not I'm involved in it or not. I, I hope I will be involved in it, but I'm pretty confident that there will, there will be a team of people from Hollywood that come in and try to make a scripted television series out of this now. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, I wonder if they'll, the White Boy Rick story 2.0. Yeah. Um, and you just got to pretend, I mean, I'm telling you, just for, for all, for, for argument's sake and for all intents and purposes, we just got to have to, when I say we, I mean me or who, whoever has a vested interest in this. You just got to go forward just pretending that the movie doesn't exist and the documentary didn't come out until last week. That the last three years have been just one bad, hazy dream. It's interesting. I mean, the only parallel I can think of recently that ties into what we talk about is the book by Sullivan, Labyrinth, about Tupac and Biggie. And, and there, were, there were simultaneously a TV show and the film for whatever reason, the TV show came out first, and then now the film City of Lies is out right is now. Is it out now, yeah. Johnny Depp? It, it was in theaters a few weeks ago. I don't know about okay. now. I haven't seen it yet. I, I would like to just because I like that book, and I know you and I like that topic. Yeah. I thought the TV series was, was decent, by the way. The, I, I can't even remember what it was called. <laughs> but I'm going to date myself with this analogy, but the thing that I immediately thought of <laughs> Please, if you're under 30 you'll, or, or maybe even under 35, you'll have no point of reference for this. But when I was growing up, there was a really big, big television show called Family Ties with Michael J. Fox. And it was one of the biggest shows on TV. And they had a, a story arc over, you know, the last half of one of the seasons where the Michael J. Fox character was falling in love with actually an actress that he eventually married, Tracy Pollan. And they played a song throughout those three or four episodes called um, At This Moment by Billy Vera. And it was a song that had been released 10 years before. So I think it had been released in like 1977 and never charted. And then because it was put into this really popular television show 10 years later, all of a sudden it became a number one hit. And, and it was like number, it was like the number one uh, song in like, you know, March of 1987 when the, 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 the song itself had been on the market for 10 years. Yeah, and I, and I think... With the example I'm using, the Tupac and Biggie, I, I don't think 
this movie is doing very well, and I, I'm not sure the TV show did very well, where at least in your case, at least the documentary is blowing yeah. up. At least one of the things. So let's give a little um, background on White Boy Rick. So for people that don't know, White Boy Rick was a real media phenomenon in Detroit in the 1980s. He was a teenage drug dealer that uh, was white in an all-black city and was romancing the mayor of Detroit's niece. And this all attracted just a ton of tabloid-esque media coverage in 1987 and 1988. He was 17 years old, and he was one of the most recognized, being Rick, uh, white boy Rick, a.k.a. Rick Wershey. Um, he was 17 years old and, and was one of the most recognizable faces in all of the state of Michigan. He was on the television news every day for two years. He was on the front page of newspapers every day for a year and a half to two years. People were fascinated by the fact that you had this teenage drug dealer. He doesn't like to refer to himself as a, a former drug kingpin. Some people use the term kingpin. Uh, you know, you can play semantics all you want, but he was a major player in the drug world at a very young age and he was white and he was dating the black mayor's niece and not knowing anything else that was just explosive. And all of the local media outlets, just, it was like a moth to a flame. You had people like 60 Minutes coming into town. The news magazine show on CBS came into town to do a story on the trial where he eventually went on trial in 1988. And you had television shows of the era like Miami Vice and 21 Jump Street that were using story arcs, semi-fictionalized story arcs in their story that had been based on or inspired by what was going on in Detroit with White Boy Rick. That was a story that everyone knew in the 1980s. And the story ended in January 1988 with uh, Rick being convicted in what was known as a, um, a 650 case, which was a now off the books Michigan drug law that said first time offenders that are caught with over 650 grams of a controlled substance, automatic life in jail without parole. So automatic life sentence. Rick got arrested when he was 17 years old for running a stop sign outside of his grandma's house. The police, during the traffic stop, uncovered a box of drugs, and he was convicted of that in January of 1988 and was sentenced to life in prison without parole, and that was really the end of the White Boy Rick story for about 20 years. Everyone kind of forgot about him. There was some, you know, a couple pop culture references here and there. Eminem and Kid Rock were both kind of fascinated by him and shouted him out in some of their early songs. Kid Rock, uh, I believe his second album, he had a song called Back from the Dead where he said, I smoke hash from a stick and I got more cash than White Boy Rick. And then in the early 2000s when he was, when the, when the drug law that he was convicted under was tossed off the books and there was a chance it looked like for him to get out on parole, Kid Rock uh, became one of his biggest supporters and came to the parole hearing and Eminem was going to do the White Boy Rick story as a follow-up to 8 Mile. He had purchased the rights. So this was all around 2003, 2004. It looked like he was going to get out, and it looked like he was going to go on tour with Kid Rock, and Eminem was going to come and make his movie. None of that happened because he ended up getting arrested in prison for running a stolen car ring. He was in the witness protection program and then got kicked out of the witness protection program and brought back to the Michigan Department of Corrections to serve his life sentence. And that's where I entered the picture. I had just finished my Motor City Mafia book, I was looking for something to write. 
I was kind of racking my brain for different parts of Detroit criminal history that I connected with. And I immediately remembered the story when I was a kid. And I wasn't someone when I was a child that was interested in this stuff that I do for a living now. I wasn't reading about gangsters or mobsters or drug dealers. But as an eight and nine-year-old, 10-year-old in 1987, 1988, white boy Rick was so prevalent in the news and his face was being plastered in front of anyone that was paying attention to a television set or a newspaper headline. And as a kid, I remember, you know, being, you know, at nights, you know, we'd eat dinner in my house and then we'd go to the couch and my mom would, you know, knit and my dad would do his work and I'd be on the floor playing with my Tonka trucks and there'd be the television news on. And I remember this teenage white kid that didn't seem that much older than me. He was only about 10 years older than me and was, was dominating the headlines and, you know, to the point where it almost became a joke in my teenage years. I didn't know anything about White Boy Rick. I didn't know his name was Rick Worshey. But, you know, us kids in the suburbs in Bloomfield Hills and Birmingham, West Bloomfield in the 90s, when I'd go to a, a you know, a suburban, all-white suburban, you know, kegger, and I'd see a kid, you know, at the kegger, you know, selling dime bags of weed. I remember one of the big jokes we'd always make. We'd come up to him and be like, who do you think you are, White Boy Rick? But we didn't know who White Boy Rick. Anyway, so that was a story that everyone knew. Back in 2006 or 7, I hooked up with him. I was going there to write a Where Are They Now piece on the 20-year anniversary of his case. I thought I was just going to be rehashing a lot of old details and just kind of bringing them back for people to remember. But what I actually found was that the story that everyone knew really wasn't the story at all. And this is where, you know, I, I really, again, made my bones as a reporter and, and validated myself as a, a, as a premier true crime journalist in America, where I was able to tell the second part of the story and the real part of the story, which is that white boy Rick was a product of the U.S. government. He was bought and paid for by Uncle Sam. He was recruited directly out of eighth grade by the FBI and the DPD, told to drop out of high school and just work for them, infiltrating drug gangs. And people will be like, well, how is that even possible? Why, why would that work? And it would work because it's so outlandish. The idea that a 14-year-old white kid that was trying to hang out with black drug dealers would be working for the government. I mean, the government thought that there's no way that these black drug dealers would ever suspect a 14-year-old kid working for, working why, for the government. Why was he on their radar to begin with? Why, why him? Right. So that's what a lot of people ask as well. And the, the simple answer is his father. Uh, his father, Richard Wirtsch, Sr., was a longtime government informant. Um, not regarding drugs, though, regarding illegal gun sales. His dad was a black market gun dealer who sold permits and silencers and guns to felons and uh, had been working, had been hedging his, you know, sell a gun to a criminal and then go tell the FBI, I, said, I, I sold a gun to said criminal and get money for it. So from the time Rick was nine, 10 years old, he was going with his father on these clandestine meetups with members of the FBI at like, you know, in, in the parking lots of Wendy's and Westland where they'd drive out as far as they could from the city so they wouldn't be seen and they'd go meet with the FBI. So these FBI agents knew that, that Richard Sr. had a very precocious, very intelligent, very charismatic young, young kid that uh, eventually they decided to cultivate. And it was, a, it was a, something that a lot of different pieces had to come into place for this to happen. And basically what happened was these FBI agents that were working gun cases um, from like 1980 to 1984, where they were operating Richard Sr., in the summer of 1984, they were 
transferred on to a drug task force, which was a federal task force made up of DPD, FBI, DEA, and ATF. And they were assigned to take down Johnny Curry, who was the biggest drug kingpin at that time on the east side. Johnny Curry happened to live in the same neighborhood as Rick. Rick was friendly with Johnny Curry's younger brother from playing on the same Little League baseball team. So the FBI agents that had been working Richard Sr. knew that Richard Sr. lived, you know, in in walking proximity to Johnny Curry. And they showed up at his house one day and said, tell us all you know about Johnny Curry. And Richard Sr. couldn't tell them anything. But Richard Jr. could because of his relationship to to Rudell uh, Boo Boo or Boo Curry, who was Johnny Curry's youngest brother. And pretty quickly they realized that Rick was someone that they could utilize, prostitute. You know, you know, they put him to work. The June of 1984, a week out of eighth grade, they started paying him and paying him to go hang out with the Currys and give them intelligence. And within a couple months, he worked his way up to the point where he was Johnny Curry's right-hand man. I know, like, the the larger narrative here is, like, abuse of police power, which I think is, is interesting and important. But I just want to ask you something about the pop culture aspect of this. Everything, you know, you go on any, like, uh, YouTube or anything and watch any, like, uh, hip-hop, documentary or like interview and look at the comments he's a snitch he's for telling in terms no, of Rick no no oh, you're about for anybody. anybody he's okay. a snitch everyone's telling and they're a piece of shit so why does white boy Rick get a pass why do Eminem and Kid Rock and these guys are on his jock but he but I don't think he gets a I think he gets a pass in certain circles okay <laughs> but he definitely doesn't get a pass in other circles I mean if you go to anything that's been being written about him in the last week yeah and you go to the comments okay you know 50% of the comments are what you okay. just okay. relay. The other 50 are what an injustice is. Sure. I hope he's doing okay. okay. There's actually, this is also kind of part of the surreal nature of what's happened in, in the last couple days is because that documentary is three years old, the documentary ends with him still locked up. Oh, so right. the, Netflix didn't ask us to do any addendum. Yeah. So there's all this free con- white boy all this Rick. conversation <laughs> on 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 Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat about you know tweeting at the, the the state of Florida, being like, "You need to let this guy out. Why is he still in prison?" And it's like he's been out for a year. So so when he was in, he was saying he was in witness protection. He was in witness protection in prison. Yeah. So he he worked for the government. But that was for something else, though. He, right. So he worked for the government between 14 and 16. Then the government cut ties with him when he was 16 years old. Uh, in less than a year, he's arrested for that cocaine case. There was clearly an agenda by the members of that task force that had been using him for two years to silence him because it was illegal and incredibly immoral and unethical yeah. to be using a 14-year-old kid to, to be gleaning information on drug gangs. And all these FBI agents in Detroit, police department detectives and DA agents were all getting promotions and commendations based on the case police work that yeah. the 14-year-old kid was doing for them. Right. Um, meanwhile, the 14-year-old kid almost gets killed. He's shot uh, by one of, allegedly, yeah. by one of Johnny Curry's lieutenants. And you would think that at that point, everyone would have pumped the brakes and said, okay, this thing has gone too far. We got we to gotta cut ties with this. We got to put this kid back into high school. But instead, it was the opposite. It was like, whoa, wait, wait. Now we have some credibility here. Wait, if we send him back undercover, any belief that he was a snitch has now been alleviated because there's no way that, that the government would let a 14-year-old go back into, into the jungle after almost getting killed by the lions and the bears. 
So they actually used it as a way to take the operation, which was known as Operation Gem, into overdrive. But I don't think he gets a free pass when it comes to the street. Okay, yeah. I think he gets a free pass when it comes to suburbanites and, you know, people that aren't in the, in the criminal world. But in the criminal world, he's, he's despised. And I believe he's got a contract on his head. And I believe that it's very dangerous for him to be bopping around Detroit um, without a care in the world. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I know I'm jumping back and forth, but okay. I'm thinking of the, back to the abuse of power aspect of this. As you point out, it's incredibly dangerous to put a young person in this position. We also have this idea of, like, low-income individual whose dad's a, a, a felon. It's difficult to imagine they would have done this to, yeah, like, no, like you were saying, a 12-year-old from Birmingham yeah. or West Bloomfield This is like, this is like if you look up exploitation in right. a dictionary, right. this is the picture of this situation that's yeah. happened. It's staring right at yeah, you. Yeah, I and mean, they're already in a vulnerable, marginalized position, so they're easy to exploit and let's if you're law enforcement. This, let's unpack this a little bit more. And, and, and I get into this in the documentary. This wasn't any ordinary investigation. This is a situation where I think the government would say the ends justify the means because they locked their, up all these bad main, guys. No, but their main target here was Coleman Young. Oh, I see. Yeah, they were yeah. going after the mayor of Detroit. Yeah, right. Who right. Johnny Curry was connected to via his wife, yeah. Kathy Curry or Kathy Volson, who was the mayor's niece, but was actually more like a daughter. Coleman Young was never arrested or convicted or charged. He was the mayor of Detroit for 20 years, the most powerful politician the city of Detroit has ever seen. But the FBI was convinced that he was dirty and he was corrupt. And they had had a full court press on him pretty much for the two decades that he was uh, in power. And they saw Johnny Curry as the way to nail Coleman Young. And they saw Rick Wershey as the way to nail Johnny Curry. So in their mind, they're going to get Johnny Curry to give them Rick, which he did. After two years, they built a big enough case to, to charge Johnny Curry and his whole organization. Johnny's looking at 25 years in prison, but Johnny wouldn't flip. Yeah, so they didn't the get Coleman part, Young. So they could, but if Johnny would have flipped, they could have brought down Coleman Young. And then Rick, with Johnny Curry in prison, Rick then pulls a, a Tony Montana and steals Frank Lopez's girl. <laughs> you know, like in the movie where, where, he, where Tony Montana steals Frank Lopez's girl, Elvira. Uh, you know, Johnny Curry goes to prison, and within a week, Rick's sleeping with Kathy. And, and that was, you know, another reason that the media got so fascinated by this. And in today's, you know, in today's orbit, it would be looked at as statutory rape. Rick was 16, and Kathy was 24. And they were having this big romance uh, where, you know, they're being followed around by, by TV cameras all across the city, going to clubs, restaurants, uh, sporting events, concerts. It was like, you know, TMZ, but 25 years earlier. What was the story with the, the Corvette where they confiscated it and DEA tried to leverage that against Coleman Young? Remember that story? Was it, there was a shootout or something? Remember, we, we, I remember you and I were sitting down with the former head of the DEA in Detroit, and he told us that story. There was a shootout, and, and as a result, they confiscated, I think it was a Corvette. Was it Johnny Curry? And then... She wanted, his niece wanted the car back. back. And DEA told Coleman Young, tell you what, we'll give you the car back if you sit down with us and let's have a conversation. And it was going to be in Windsor. Remember Coleman yeah. Young, they, the DEA wanted it on neutral territory. And, and Coleman Young originally agreed to do it. And then the last minute he, it was a shooting involving the Curry gang. Okay. And 
it was a car that Johnny had bought for Kathy. Right. Okay. And right. Kathy was trying to use her connections in the in City Hall and in the police department yeah, to, to get, get the, the car back. To get the car back. Okay. So that was before Rick was must have been before Rick was dating her. Yeah. Okay. And if you if you believe Rick, and I do believe Rick, um, I don't think it was just, you know, Rick looking to seduce Kathy. I think Kathy was just as enamored with Rick as Rick was with Kathy. I mean, just like all the women in Detroit at that point were kind of after Rick. Uh, Rick could have any woman he wanted at that point. Um, Kathy thought that, you know, this is someone that, that she uh, that, that resonated with her, even though he was a teenager. But she met him two, three years before that, and he'd been kind of like uh, someone that had been assigned to take care of her. You know, Johnny, one of, the, one of Rick's responsibilities working for Johnny was to make sure that Kathy had everything she needed. So Rick was like, you know, at her beck and call for two years. It's kind of it's kind of like, you know, a celebrity that falls in love with her boyfriend or fa- a celebrity that falls in love with her bodyguard. bodyguard. Yeah. yeah. Did anyone on the street during this time suspect Rick and or his father of being informants? Yeah, Johnny Curry did. He, he ordered him murdered. Okay. And, and Rick was because he suspected killed. him as an informant, not not like as a drug rivalry thing. No, no. Because Rick, like six, like. Less than six months into the whole operation, Rick is opened as an informant in June of 84. In October or November of 84, Johnny Slim Walker shoots Rick. Johnny Slim Walker worked for Johnny Curry. What tipped off Curry to suspect? The, the police tipped him off. Oh, corrupt. Curry was, Detroit PD. Curry was connected he, to the police department. He had his own, through, right. Right. Yeah. So people that knew that Rick was working undercover tip, tipped him off. Did people believe... If Curry went around telling people that, did people believe him? They didn't believe him once he came back after he was shot. Oh, right. That That's was your point. Like, yeah, that was your point. Okay. Yeah. Right. I think any worries that he was a snitch at that point were removed because he's back here. The government would never send him back to us. Right. So what's Rick's view on his role? Does he take the, uh, like we talked about, with, we were talking about Hotel Scarface, our episode recently with uh, Robin Farzad. Um Like the 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 guys who are informants, they view it as like, no, I'm playing the feds. Uncle Sam is. I'm not a snitch. I'm playing them. No, he regrets. That's that. what Whitey Bulger no, says. No, he, reg- he regrets it. He says, if I wouldn't have talked, I, yeah, I would have. I would have been out twenty years before. Okay, and I wouldn't have any of this. You know, at the end of the day, with Rick, the problem wasn't the street. The problem was the people in the police department in City Hall, in the government that viewed that he somehow did them wrong. Yeah. And, and at the top of that was Coleman Young, and, and underneath Coleman Young was Gil Hill, who was the uh, homicide commander, um, had been in the movie Beverly Hills Cop, eventually became the president of Detroit City Council. So you when know, Gil Hill and, and Coleman Young were, two, were the two most powerful people in Detroit at that time, and for the next 30 years... People that were loyal to them were doing their bidding to keep Rick locked up. Rick always said, you know, my biggest mistake was cooperating. If I wouldn't have cooperated, none of this would have, I wouldn't have been in this shit fest. So the the judge was someone who was connected to Coleman. Whoever did the sentencing was connected to. No, because the sentencing was an automatic sentencing. That was. Didn't uh, ma- you, could, yeah. you had no discretion. Right. No judicial discretion. Okay. But the, the trial was a three-ring circus. Rick did himself no favors at the trial. Rick did himself no favors that entire time period when he was being 
hounded by the press that he acted like, uh, you know, an entitled punk um, who, you know, would make snide remarks to the media, even though he loved the media being there. And at his trial, you had an entourage of a thousand people that were following him around and acting like, you know, uh, he was, you know, the second coming of El Chapo. And there are all these kids walking around with, you know, gold ropes and beepers and <laughs> feel a sweatsuits that are feeling uh, that are filling the the gallery in the courtroom and making a uh, making a lot of noise and and being unruly. And it just really the the PR issue was just as much of an issue as any of the drugs. Who was his attorney, lead attorney? So the lead then? attorney at first was Bill Buffalino, mm. who was the, the big mob attorney. But uh, I believe Buffalino was compromised. Buffalino was acting as a go-between for Rick and some dirty cops. So, you know, they eventually brought in two of Coleman Young's main inner circle attorneys in uh, um, Edwin Bell and Sam Gardner. And those were attorneys that were brought on board by Kathy Volson. And, you know, hindsight being 2020, they were not brought onto the defense team to get Rick acquitted. They were brought onto the defense team to get Rick That's That's the leverage convicted. that Hill and Young played yeah. to keep the, right, to keep him off the street. And I know Rick turned down at the time, he turned down a three-year plea. Wow. Which he would have been home by the time he was 21. Wow. But roll the dice, because in his mind, he thought that, that uh, Buffalino, Bell, and Gardner had fixed the jury. He'd been being told that the, the judge and the jury were bought and paid for and that he didn't have, he didn't have anything to worry about. I think he gave up like $300,000 for what he thought was a bribe, and they all just pocketed the money. Did the attorneys at the time bring up the fact that he was an informant? Did they try that angle? No, that didn't come out. No, they yet. didn't. They didn't right, try that right, angle. Right. They, they should have. That came out that later. That should have came out in, in the trial, but they kept it under wraps. Who's now, why do they keep it under wraps? Yeah, that's what I'm asking. Well, it would make sense if Coleman Young's people, if they wanted to keep yeah. him off the street, they're not going to bring yep. that up. But, but Buffalino, I, I'm but Buffalino curious. Was, Buffalino was compromised. Buffalino was, was a go-between for Rick and a dirty cop. So if people start asking Rick about dirty cops, you don't think Buffalino's name's going to pop up? Right. Yeah. Yeah, wow. So who was paying his legal fees at the time? Was that his own drug money or who, who was paying? His money. He, bank, he kind of <laughs> bankrupted himself. People, like, when, you, when, when, you know, one of part of this mythology with White Boy Rick over the years, at least in Detroit, is that, oh, you know, he has all this money buried somewhere and, you know, he made all, you know, tens of millions of dollars and it's all spread around and in bank accounts or in safety deposit boxes and, you know, Rick's like, me, that could have been the case if I didn't have that case to, to worry about. Cause he's like, you know, he spent a, a million dollars on that case. Do does the, um, what are these? Um, so he probably made a couple, you know, I'm not saying the guy didn't make a lot of money. He probably made a couple million dollars when he was a teenager, but you know, that's not the kind of money that lasts you 30 years, especially if you're, you know, having to pay lawyers in your mind, pay off judges and, uh, prosecutors and jurors or whatever. And then he had the, the Colombians and the Cubans that he was getting drugs on consignment for that because he was in this legal trouble and all these drugs had been confiscated, he then owed them money. 
And they kidnapped, uh, you know, some members of his entourage, uh, some people that were very close to him. And he had to fly down to Florida with a lot of money to get them. Because, you know, if, if you've watched Narcos or, if, you know, the, the, the cartel guys are at a whole other level of, uh, you know, demonic. Um, <laughs> their, their recourse for, for being done wrong is, is immediate bloodshed. So he was, he had a real shitstorm. Uh, he was part of, what did the FBI guys, what do they say now about this? Do they have any remorse or any? So, uh, the, all the, all the law enforcement I've, that I've interviewed over the years, they look at him as a race traitor and he's a punk. And even if he was screwed over a little bit, you know, who cares? He deserves to rot away in prison and they don't feel remorse. And some of that might be projecting and some of that might be them worried about losing their pensions. Um, but there is a small slice of guys that, that were complicit in exploiting and prostituting Rick that went to bat for him. Mm. Um, Greg Schwartz being the, the most prominent of that, of that group. Greg Schwartz was in charge of that entire FBI unit and, uh, was actually one of the people that arrested Rick and had, had been one of Rick's biggest cheerleaders the last 10, 15 years. Saying that, that he got a raw deal. Yeah, that he needs to be released and that he had been... Um, operated as an informant without Greg's knowledge. Greg was in charge. Greg was the boss of the FBI agents that were doing the illegal stuff, and they were keeping it from Greg. Any uh, any insight into what the FBI office in Detroit at this moment, what their feelings are about this case? Would they rather people not talk yeah, about it? That Wayne County, Kim Worthy, Detroit FBI office. You know this this is a a huge smudge. Uh, a huge black mark uh, on the legacy of Kim Worthy as a, a Wayne County prosecutor in, in the Detroit FBI office. This is, this is, you know, not their, their, their greatest day. What do you think about, I mean, we're probably not the, the best guys to have this conversation, but what do you think about the argument that it has nothing to do with race? If this was a, a, a black criminal that had been done wrong by the system in the yeah, same there'd way, there'd be no movie. There'd either. be no, and I, don't, I, and I say that's ridiculous. Because, yes, there is, a, there is a racial component to this. You can't deny that. But what was the wrongdoing here has nothing to do with race. Any 14-year-old that would be recruited out of eighth grade to go work for the government, almost get killed, then told to go work for the government some more, and then when you're done working for the government and the government has, has you know, sucked you dry for every ounce of information. And then that government goes out and makes 50 huge cases and then decides that in order to cover up the way they got to those convictions, we're going to take the person that helped us get those convictions and we're going we're gonna to put them underneath the jail and we're going to throw the key away. No, but the, the point is no one would care if he weren't. I, I disagree with that. I disagree. That, that he gets this sort of exceptional... No, I, just, I disagree. I, I don't think that's true at all. I think if this was a, 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 a black... You don't think there's there's, there's is, examples of African Americans that have experienced something course, similar? Of, no, of course there. They don't, a, but they don't have a movie. There's a of course there's a disproportionality between uh, you know African American males or females being railroaded by the system more than Caucasians. I mean, I can't. That's not something you can argue. Yeah, I'm just saying this particular exploitation or prostitution that the government utilized this this innocent child for. I just don't think race plays a role in it in terms of that. 
it obviously played a role in it in terms of PR and that's in terms I, of yeah, the way that the, the case was covered. That's what I mean. That's true, but I, I don't think there would be any less of an outcry for the injustice that was done here if this was a, a, a black person or a Mexican person or an Asian person. No, I mean, I guess not, not the philosophical argument about the injustice, but the... Would would there still be a film? Would would white Americans find this as compelling? Probably not. That, that <laughs> that's part, what I mean. That's what that I'm trying part, to get. No, to. that part's probably true. Yeah. Um, is it? Would it be less spectacular? That's what I mean. In terms yeah. of a visual storytelling, right? Yes, it would. I mean, yeah. people were, you know, a big part of the attraction to this story was a 14 year old white kid right. ingratiating himself into Black Detroit, right? And not just Black Detroit you know, like amongst other teenagers, he was ingratiating himself into major league criminals that were in their 30s and their late 20s. And he's getting them to trust him when he's 14, 15 years old. Yeah, in a city that's 90% African-American. Right. And the mayor's black. and Right. That race definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty racially charged um, story. And the police didn't like him because he acted black and he talked black and he dated black women. But as I say in the documentary, it wasn't an act. He wasn't a poser. No, that was him. Socialization. Yeah. So another interesting thing about the, I don't know if legacy is the right, the right term, but I'm a little bit older than Scott. And so um, just by a couple of years, but there was a similar effect with white boy Rick to like the purple gang mythology, because Scott and I have talked about this before, but there's this idea in, in the Detroit area that like everyone is somehow related to a member of the Purple Gang. Like everyone's grandfather, great grandfather no, is related that's, to anyone that's Jewish, especially Jewish, right, yeah. Jewish Detroiters. But I remember, you know, being a you know, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, and like, you know, people who were dealing drugs, um, it would come up a lot. Oh yeah, he knows White Boy Rick. He's affiliated with White Boy Rick. And at the time. You know, I, I didn't really follow this stuff, so I didn't know what that meant. But then it's interesting now when I look back at the timeline, that's pretty much impossible. Like Rick right. was already well, off is, the streets. This is like- also what Rick, Rick also told me something <laughs> that I think was very profound. And there are so many people with white boy Rick stories. Everyone has a right. white boy Rick. That's and what like I'm saying. Some of these stories are being told in the late 90s when he's already yes. been in prison. Right. 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 There's no Rick, way. <laughs> Rick said to me really early on, he said, if anybody comes to you and tells you that they were working with me and they were white, Yeah, don't believe them. Yeah, I wasn't right. working with any white. That's what I'm and, I tell, and I swear 75% <laughs> of the people that come yeah. up to me and be like, I was doing business with white boy. Yeah, they were white. Yeah. He's like, yeah. He's like, I was only doing business with a small group of people. They were all black. They were all the, the biggest figures in the game. <laughs> they weren't nickel and dime white right. dealers. We're talking about Demetrius Holloway, <laughs> right. Johnny Curry, the right. Chambers brothers, Cliff Jones. And then behind Demetrius Holloway was that whole East Side, Frank Usher, uh, Chester Campbell contingent that were behind. Yeah. So, I mean, we were talking Dangerous about guys. the OGs of the OGs. Yeah. So, Rick wasn't doing any, you know, uh, you know, m- moving, moving. Nickel uh, Yeah, quarter ounces. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's, it's just funny because at the time, you know, I'm a kid. I wasn't really following that case. It was like, okay, whatever, white boy Rick, okay. What, I don't even know what that means. And now... You know, I think back on that, and it's like, <laughs> that's total bullshit. There's, rolled, no, there's no way. And he rolled deep. I mean, the joke was that he had what they call the black the black secret service. So, like, he would go somewhere, and he would literally have 20 black guys 
there behind him, either as bodyguards or entourage. It was just like wherever you went, you'd have just like this sea of security um, that were his his inner circle that were kind of watching his back. And a lot of people called it the Black Secret Secure or the Black Secret Service, like he was the president. So what happened with the, I know we're jumping all over here, but why did the Universal Project fall through back to the movie stuff? This is what I'll say about the movie project. That be careful what you wish for. It's one of those real old um, sayings, be careful what you wish for. And it was everything I ever wanted. And I'm going to get to you. I'm going to answer your question in a second. But just making this about me for a second. Uh, Getting the opportunity to work on a $40 million Hollywood film about white boy Rick being hired by the studio, getting a, a salary, getting to work with Academy Award winning producers, Academy Award winning actors, taking my reporting and my source material and turning it into a Hollywood film. It was like the dream came true. And I thought it was going to be just everything I wished for and this kind of panacea of, of positivity and this, this kind of communal, everyone's working towards the same thing together and we're a, we're a big team and we all have the same end goals. If, if it was like a, a tug of war, you know, everyone's on the same side of the rope pulling in the same direction and everyone has the best intentions. <laughs> it just was the t- polar opposite of all of that. It was so toxic. It was so... There were so many snakes that were just slithering over all aspects of this project and it was divide and conquer and it was political and it was backbiting and, and I was miserable. It it had such a negative effect on my mental health um, that I really honestly am just starting to recover from now. I I have like PTSD from, from that three years from 2015 to 2018. It was so uncomfortable and, and just being, it, it was like having a front seat to a train wreck and you see two trains on opposite sides of the track, you know, slowly coming towards each other. And you're sitting there on a lawn chair in front of the, the, the future collision site. And you're screaming that anyone to anyone that would listen, please, please stop that train to the right. Please, please stop that train to the left. They're going to collide and it's going to be a, a, a disaster of all disasters. And I was pretty much told to just go, just sit there and shut up. We know what we're doing. When these, when these two uh, freight trains get close to each other, one's going to veer off and everything's going to be fine and it's going to be a hit movie and we're going to win an Oscar and, you know, the director's going to go on to be the Steven, the Steven Spielberg that he's being told he's going to be. So, but unfortunately, it was the exact opposite and it was just a total shit show. So now going back to your question about what happened with Universal. So... That was really the first domino to fall in getting the Hollywood project off the ground and in some ways foreshadowed a lot of this um, fighting and bitterness and this this territorial um, were you going to be involved in that one too? No, I wasn't. No, that was, I'm sorry. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. rambling. Yeah. But this, this, everyone being incredibly territorial. Uh, so Universal came in and optioned Evan Hughes's The Trials of White Boy Rick, which was like a 40-page e-magazine story. And they intended not to use me or Rick. 
They told Rick's camp, we're not going to consult you at all. You'll have nothing to do with this. We're going to make your life story. We're not going to pay you for it. And we're not going to consult you for it. And that upset a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. And um, the Sony group, which at that time was just a pair of screenwriters known as the Miller Brothers, who are kind of a young up-and-coming uh, movie-making tandem, and they had gotten wind of the Universal project. In fact, I think they went in and pitched Universal to be the directors of that project before they gave it to Kaczynski, and then were told they didn't get the gig. And then they, I think, did their research and realized that me and Rick, who really were, you know, all of this came from me and Rick. I mean, we were mm -hmm. the wellspring of information yeah. that was available for people to yeah. go write about. Evan Hughes, all due respect to Evan, but I mean, 90% of his reporting was just piggybacking yeah. off of my reporting. You re you resuscitated that story. Yeah. There's no doubt about dead. that. No, I resuscitated and I brought a whole new narrative to it. Yeah. I mean, I resuscitated in the sense that I brought White Boy Rick back to life. Um, people had completely forgotten about him or thought he was off living his life as I, a free I, man. I didn't even know that he was still in prison until you started or, writing about it. Or confused him with Maserati Rick, who was oh, one yeah. of his contemporaries, who yeah. was killed in the emergency room right. uh, in an intensive care unit, uh, shot in the head as he as he was in an intensive care bed. Uh, so whenever I would bring it up, they'd be like, oh, yeah, what's he doing now? How's he doing? Is he, you know, He's been free for about 20 years now, right? And they're like, no, he's been in there for 30 years. Or, oh, man, that was tragic. He got killed in his hospital bed. It's like, no, he didn't. That wasn't true either. That was different Rick, guy. That was Rick Carter. Um, but uh, so the Miller brothers came in. They flew into Detroit, I believe, in February of 15. And uh, I took them up to go visit Rick. And we had an afternoon where we all talked about what was going on. And then the Millers, in a matter of like three or four days, went back to L.A. And Sony agreed to do the movie. And then all of a sudden, me and Rick were involved in the Sony project. But then Rick and his people had a little bit of a issue with compensation with the Sony people and then also with some stuff with the screenwriters, which still doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And let me go on record by saying if the screenwriter, if the, if the film would have been made based on the script that was sold, which was the Miller Brothers script, which was on the blacklist, if people don't know what the blacklist is, it's every year... Uh, I believe it's Variety. It might be Hollywood Reporter. One of the big uh, Hollywood trades. Every year they put out what they call the blacklist, which is the top 25 unmade scripts in Hollywood. And if you make the blacklist, you're almost guaranteed to get a deal to make the movie. And uh, their movie made the blacklist, or their screenplay made the blacklist. Sony decides to, to make the movie. But because of some of these political machinations and who they brought on to direct this Jan Demange, uh, this European that was at that time, uh, someone that was viewed as a, a rising star in the, in the directorial, um, world, but, uh, <laughs> tide has turned <laughs> that perception and it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. I say that, <laughs> I say that with as much contempt as I can. Cause I have nothing positive to say about that guy. Wow. Um, but, uh, so they decided to rewrite the screenplay and not just rewrite it, but like rewrite it a thousand times with a thousand different screenwriters to, and it just became the definition of too many cooks in the kitchen, uh, paralysis by analysis. And I can remember at the premiere, uh, Demange, the director stands up and they and they kind of ask him the same, someone from the audience asked him the question that you're asking me, like how did, what was the genesis of all this? And he says, 
first he said two things that I just wanted to jump up to the stage and strangle him for. First thing he says is, I just want to thank the city of Detroit because I really, it was so important for me to make the city of Detroit a character in this film. It's like, really, asshole? Maybe then you should have shot the movie in Detroit. Yeah. Instead of shooting it in Cleveland. Cleveland. Yeah. And, 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 and it, it blows my mind. These people, you, you, you hire a European and a group of New Yorkers to make a movie about Detroit in 1987. There's no point of reference, completely tone deaf across the board. And these New Yorkers and Demange come up with the idea that we're not going to shoot in Detroit because the state of Michigan has been so bad to Rick. We're going to, we're going to take away the commerce that would come from the $40 million budget that would go into this film. We'd be shooting for a year and it would do. Is that really what they said? (laughs) We're going to give it to Ohio instead because we don't want to reward Michigan. And it's like, dude, you're so tone deaf, these people that made that decision. Did you even talk to Rick about it? Because there's nobody that is a more diehard Detroiter than white boy Rick, than Rick Wershey. And if you would have asked Rick what he thought about that, I can guarantee you Rick would say, shoot the movie in Detroit. What, what was there really at that point? Well, okay, let me back up. Let me, at, once the thing gets rolling, they pick the director. So how, the, how, how involved so pushed, was Rick at that point? So they, he was involved in everything. Oh, so but, he was but to beginning to end. He was involved in everything from beginning to end, but in some ways that was a problem because all due respect to Rick, if he's listening to this, Rick, Rick doesn't know his story as well as he thinks he knows his story. I mean, he knows his version of his story, but there's a lot of stuff that he just doesn't have the perspective or you know the unbiased take to tell the accurate version of his story. So that's what I was there for, but I was ignored because Demange and the members of the production team decided that uh, I was their enemy and that they, they needed to blackball me. And I was pretty much blackballed off the set <laughs> to the point where I was banned from the set because I was giving them historical <laughs> notes that I was told to give them by the studio that they say was hindering their creative process. So at that point you were like, what, like executive consultant or what was your like official was, capacity? Uh, tec- script consultant, technical consultant, and then my reporting was the source material for the script. So, so he, first he says the thing about how he, it was so important for him to, to, for Detroit to be a part of the story, which is, could not be further from the truth. Then he says, when I got my hands on this script for the first, I'm going to do my British accent. When I got <laughs> Even my hands friends, right? on this script for the first time, it was like Scarface meets Goodfellas. I couldn't do that. I'm like, wait, what do you mean? That's, that's exactly what you want it to be. You want it to be Scarface meets Goodfellas. There needs to be some fun. There ne- you, you as the, the viewer needs to want to go on the ride with these people. Like, yeah, there, there, there should be that's some... That's a per- bizarre comment. What is that supposed to mean? He's saying that it, was, that it was too generic. It was too... There wasn't enough heart in the film to make it the way that the Millers had written it, which, again, was on the blacklist... The Miller script was brilliant. The Miller, if you would have shot the Miller script, the movie would have been a hit. He'd be an all-time true crime classic. It was fun. It was fast, but at the same time, it was uh, profound and compelling, and 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 really got to the heart of the matter. So a lot of the changes you're saying was the director, specifically wholesale, the director, wholesale changes to the script, wanting to make it more of a father-son tale. Um, but they brought in some heavy, some, they brought in some heavy hitters. They brought in Scott Silver, who was the screenwriter for the Joker and for eight mile. So, I mean, Scott Silver knew Detroit. He wrote eight mile, but they, so to me, if you're going to do, if you're not going to do the Miller's version of it, 
Then you do Scott Silver's version of it. But they decided not to do Scott Silver's version of it either because I guess Scott Silver was difficult to deal with. I can speak to that. He was difficult to deal with. I don't have a lot of positive things to say about Scott Silver either other than the fact that I think he's a brilliant screenwriter and um, is great at his craft. But uh, personally, Scott Silver and I didn't really um, get along. But again, nothing but respect for for his uh, uh, his writing skills and what he's done for Rick. He's done a lot for Rick and has been a, a great friend to Rick. So I got nothing but respect for Scott Silver in that regard. Um, but the director didn't like his vision but either. This, they didn't like his vision either. So then they turned it over to um, the guy that had written all the Harry Potter movies. And with that version combined with... Uh, the director kind of giving his notes combined with this other version that had been written way before by one of the producer's brothers. They cobbled together whatever script that, that, that they ended up shooting, which was... Just, so it was a real hodgepodge of uh, different And then there was, there was the whole question about who they were going to cast as Rick, which became a huge debate. Um, again, uh, decisions that were made above my pay grade, but myself and the studio were very, very adamant that they hire either uh, Timothy Chalmay, Ansel Elgort, or Lucas Hedges, who are three of the hottest young actors in the business right now. All three wanted the, the, the gig. All three auditioned. Um, I don't know if Chalmay could have done it. I think Lucas Hedges would have destroyed that role in a positive way. I think Lucas Hedges would have won an Academy Award for that role. Um, and I think Ansel Elgort could have done a great job with it too. Ansel, for people for people that don't know, Ansel Elgort was Baby Driver, uh, and Lucas Hedges has been in a bunch of stuff. Um, he was in uh, Lady Bird. He was in um, I'm looking Manchester up, I'm look, by the Sea. Looking him up now. I think he got an Oscar nomination for Manchester by the Sea. Anyway, so the studio was very hot to trot with those three actors, but Jan and the producers were obsessed with the notion of getting a non-actor. Why? Why, though? I, I don't know. Because Jan thought of himself like as... Avant-garde or something? Yes, that, like Jan that. thought that, like, I'm not... I can't use a regular trained actor. I need to mold a non-actor. I need to <laughs> take a, a piece of unmolded clay it sounds and like, uh, mold him. Like, uh, it reminds me of, like, a Christopher Guest, like... No, it was like... Mocking, you, like, mockumentary. You know, if, if people have ever seen um, Entourage... Yeah, yeah. He, he's like Billy Walsh, but like 10 times worse. Like, oh my God. So uh, they spent two years and millions of dollars running around the world, literally running around the world. But who, so who signed, off, who signed off giving him this? That, that would have been the executives at Sony. Like he had total autonomy on this film, which was the biggest issue. That they were treating him, again, like he was a Spielberg or a Scorsese, someone that had this huge track record, but he had never been on a major Hollywood film before. He had done a one European film that did really well that was called 71, but had never done a big Hollywood production before, and he was completely unchecked. So I'm thinking to myself the whole time, I was like, if this was... Steven Spielberg or Marty Scorsese, and they were acting like this, I would be like, well... What the hell do I know? They, right. they're, they're the experts. They've done this before. And even with Jan, if at the end of the day, the product would have been great, I would have said, 
you know, screw what Scott thought two years ago. He knew what he was talking about, and, and he turned out to have a great product. But at the end of the day, the product was a piece of shit. <laughs> Do, have you have you heard any gossip about the executives at Sony, how they feel? Do they have any buyer's remorse about this? Or they of don't? course they do. They knew it was a, they, they missed, every step of the way they misfired. They got the wrong director. When they got the director, they gave, you know, they let him have too much rope uh, and, and the horse was out of the barn. And to the point where in December of 17, I believe, maybe was, there was a point where the studio said it was around December, uh, it was either September 17 going into 18, or it was 16 going to 17, I don't remember. But the studio said to Jan, you either make this decision, because he was taking so long to make this decision. He was like going all around, like I'm talking, going all around the world. I think they, I think they auditioned something like 5,000 or 25,000 kids. Um, and the studio said, you're taking way too long on this. You either make your decision by January 1st, or we're making the decision for you, and the actor will be on set January 10th. So the the guy who got the role, he just he just tried out out of nowhere, right? He had no. He they found him in a tra trailer park in Pittsburgh. He what they were doing, what the um, this, the the acting scouts were doing, were they were going around to all these high schools in low middle class white areas where there would be white and black kids kind of at the same economic level. And they were going into, like, literally going into cafeterias and, like, looking for, like, tables where there'd be, like, six black kids and a white kid. And then after lunch would be over with, they'd pull the white kid aside That's, and be like, I mean, hey, do you want to try that out? It shows you how clueless, like, Hollywood elites are. Like, yeah. that's so, like condescending. Yeah. First of all, it's called acting for a reason. Right. Like, like, I mean, are you going to, are you going to cast an actual Cuban drug lord to play Tony Montana? Right. <laughs> it's called acting So I felt for bad reason. for Richie. I didn't get to know him very well. He seems like a good Actually, mo most of the, that's some of the few positive reviews of that movie is that, 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 that he wasn't that bad. Know. Again, all due respect to Richie, like, that was a big problem with the film, in my opinion. He was, he was the over whole movie his was on his shoulders. Yeah, yeah, right. And it's not his fault. He's right, a 15-year-old right. kid that never acted before, and you're going to put a $40 million studio film on his shoulders? Yeah. I thought he was good. I'm not saying he was bad. Yeah. I thought he was good. I thought he was okay. Did you get to good. interact with him at all? A like, personal? A little bit. Yeah. I, got, uh, okay, I thought he was okay to good, but for that movie to really zing... Yeah, the person that plays White Boy Rick needs to be great. Of needs course. to be an A plus. It can't just be. Yeah. Oh, he's all right. Yeah. He did, I mean, for being a non actor, he was good. Yeah. But uh, so eventually they decide to hire Richie, and they thought that like, oh, we're just gonna uh, we'll, we'll put Richie with Matthew McConaughey in Matthew McConaughey's. So I think Richie got to Matthew McConaughey like two months before shooting, and they just dropped. They like plucked him from the trailer park in Pittsburgh. And dropped him with McConaughey for two months. So like, all right, you're living with McConaughey now for two months. He's your dad. And then, so after those two months, then they showed up on the set and they're like, all right, we're shooting this thing. So nobody pushed back. I mean, you're saying they, they were they were impatient that it was taking too long to cast, but but other than that, nobody at Sony had a problem with with no. Everyone, I'm telling you, I mean, you got to think, think about it. if you're a basketball fan, think about it like this: like he was LeBron James before LeBron James got drafted, or he was. Um, you know, Trevor Lawrence, like for this draft right now for football. You know, he was the number one, you know, five years ago, six years ago, he in Hollywood, he was considered the next big thing. And it was really a question of not who wanted him to do what, but what he wanted to do. 
I see. Um, in fact, he at the, around the same time, he got the Bond franchise. So they gave him James Bond. And he got the 7-5 documentary, if anyone's seen that on Netflix. Great documentary. They're making that into a film, which he was going to direct. Well, after the White Boy Rick debacle, he got the 7-5 film taken away from him. And the Bond <laughs> people said, no, you're not going to do the next one. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so... So, I mean, this, this guy, you know, he made his bed and, and now he's got to sleep in it. And, and, and then when, the, when he was doing press for the film in, um, in Great Britain, which is where he's from. He, oh, I thought he was French. He's British? He's French-Algerian. Okay. But he was living in the UK. But he grew up in the UK. Okay. Okay. Um, so he went on and did a press tour in Europe about six months after the movie had dropped in in America and bombed, and all he did on the press tour was rip the film, ripped his own film. Yeah, I remember that. I was curious. And But he, well, he was blaming the studio or something? What was his, like... I think he was blaming himself, which he should have. Oh, he, oh, he was? He, I, I don't know. He should have blamed himself. I thought, yeah, I, I, was, I didn't I didn't get the sense that he was that self-aware about it. I thought, he, I thought he was... I've heard some people that have been in conversations with him over the last couple of years, and they say that he, he's really hard on himself. Oh, really? It. And I say, well, he should be. Yeah. Well, at least there's some self-awareness. <laughs> some- this, was, this was his mistake, really. There's something to be but said for that. also all the people that were there supposed to, that were supposed to check him never yes. checked him. Yeah, it sounds like it. And do you have any insight into what Rick's thoughts about the movie are or were? No, I don't, actually. Interesting. Uh, Rick and I, at one point, were very close. Um, I talked to him every day for about 12 years, maybe. Um, but in the last two, three years, I've only spoken to him Two or three times, and a lot of that was the mo- the movie stuff that caused yeah, we that. Yeah, we fell out over the film, yeah. over a lot of the blackballing that was done to me um, by the production. Well, we see, going back to what I was saying about my mindset about the film being one big community, one big team, all working towards the same goal. What I learned was that's just not the way it's done in Hollywood. Like, there's the studio that provides the money to start the project and then provides the infrastructure to distribute and market the film. Then there's the production team that the studio hires to make the film. So kind of in between the, the, the goal lines. So I was working for the studio, the production team. And I'm, and I'm guessing this is different. Every project's different. Like I'm sure there are a lot of historical projects when the production team and the director want to lean on the history guy. Mm-hmm. Like I heard... Uh, Tom, Tom Hanks seems to be like one of those right. dudes for his World War II shit. And I heard that uh, uh, in the movie Lincoln, mm. that Spielberg had the history guy by yeah. his side, like the entire yeah. production. Well, my experience was the exact opposite. They didn't want me anywhere near them. Um, they were annoyed by my presence. They saw me as the studio's boy, quote unquote, that I was doing the studio's work and that they were these... These like yeah, these artists that don't need in you know um, input from the suits, and I was representing the suits um, hmm. when in fact I was just there to make sure that things were done you know historically accurate and that people weren't going to get sued because there was a lot of you know delicate subject matter here in terms of you know potential litigation, um, and I was there to for for all those fact checks. Um, and they just didn't want any part of me. They didn't care about the history. They told me that from early on. They're like, if people want the history, they'll watch the documentary. 
This is a film. We don't really care about what really happened. We're going to tell the story we want. The, the story, the, we're going to tell the story we want the way we want to tell it. Whether or not that's what happened or not, doesn't, it doesn't matter to us. And every film from is, doing is that, going to take away, license. But, but from doing that, they took away all the fun from the movie. Yeah, if I anyone mean, saw the movie, like, there was 10 minutes when Rick was a drug dealer. Yeah, I mean, it, it. sometimes, I mean, you look at Goodfellas isn't exactly like Wise Guy, but the point is, as long as you do it well, then you can you can for, you can can excuse the movie not being 100%, the chronology and things like that. I know that Rick the, was very disappointed with the reaction of the film. Um, I know that Rick didn't watch the documentary until Friday. Oh. It was the first time he saw the doc. Any word on, on Netflix? What he thinks and about I heard the... that he really liked it. Oh, good. I got relayed to me that he uh, liked it a lot. Oh, good. Um, but in terms of the film, I just know that he was upset with the fact that nobody really saw it. It didn't make money, and the critics didn't like it. <laughs> it's like, there is like, it was, you know, sometimes you can make a great movie that just nobody sees, but the critics will tell everyone it's a great movie and it will stand the test of time. And then you can make other movies that make, $2 billion, like some of the superhero movies, but the critics hate it. Mm -hmm. you know, this was, was the, the worst yeah. scenario. <laughs> the movie made no money and, and the critics hate yeah, it. Yeah, double whammy. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell, where can they find, let's, because we'll wrap up here. Where can they find the, the documentary on Netflix? Yeah, Netflix. Right else? now it's on a, 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 it's trending in the top 10. So it's, it's the, the first thing you see when you click on your Netflix. It's a quick uh, watch. I believe it's, an hour and 28 minutes or something. Um, and I, I really believe that from this, I think this is a tipping point. I think that if you're interested in the, in the white boy Rick case, I think coming down the pike will probably be some form of reality show. I would guess that, that there will be some scripted um, development that, that starts soon and um, possibly a book, whether or not I'm involved in that. I don't know. At one point, Rick and I were, were, were writing a book that was supposed to be attached to the film and, uh, again, a lot of politics got involved in that and it, it, it never happened. So nothing good happened other than white boy Rick getting out of prison because of all the attention that was garnered by these projects that were on the horizon back in 1718. The only thing good that happened was it got Rick out of prison. The projects themselves back then didn't move the needle at all. Well, that's, except, that's why we're sitting here in 2021 and the documentary that's been out three years has hit Netflix. And now it's like everyone's learning yeah. the story for the first time because everyone's learning the story for the first time. Yeah. Well, at least the documentary, I mean, that's good. That's a good thing that came out of it. Even if it took a while to, yeah, for people to, to take notice of it. But, so, you know, the documentary, like I said, was in the New York, you know, got accepted into the New York film festival. It won the Detroit film festival. Um, critically, so with the film, with the documentary as opposed to the film, nobody saw it until the last week, but it was critically hailed. Yeah, so I mean, I hope people, uh, our listeners, check it out and follow Scott's reporting on Gangster Report. He still writes about uh, White Boy Rick occasionally when it's when it's news, something comes up. But uh, by, he, the, by the time, yeah, go ahead. Hopefully, we can get him on. I'm, yeah, I'm hoping that yeah before the year's over, that would with, be great. Maybe we can get him on uh, uh, for for an episode of the OG and yeah, have him here in person. Incredibly um, magnetic. He's very well spoken. Think, he's very intelligent. I think people he's would like that. Great storyteller. Um, you know, he's got like a genius IQ. I'm not saying that because he told me that. I, I've. 
I'm, I probably know more about Rick than Rick knows about Rick because of my research. I've been through all of his files, uh, his prison files, his court files, his FBI and DEA files. I've, I've read literally probably hundreds of thousands of, of official documents related to Rick Wershey. And in one of those documents I got my hands on, there was a psychiatric evaluation of him that uh, gave him an IQ test when I think when he first got locked up and they put his IQ at like 145 or something. Wow. Well, yeah, it's a fascinating story. So, I mean, it'd be great if he would if he would uh, come on. But um, by the time uh, people are listening to this, uh, watching this on YouTube, listening to us, make sure that you uh, shout us out, support us, please. And this is the physician. I want to give all our OG listeners, you know, you're getting some insight from from your boy Scott Bernstein here that I've never come out publicly with. What I've said in the last hour, I'm really letting it all. F- I'm leaving it all out there. I'm letting it fly. I have not come out publicly against the film or against the people that were involved in the film like I just did. And it actually, honestly, it feels good. Uh, <laughs> Therapy session. I, I, uh, like I said, my mental health was really affected by this for the last three years. I've been in like, it's been like, a, I've been in a white boy Rick hangover from the treatment I had uh, from from the production crew and the director I was, it was just so disrespectful and just so dismissive of all the work I did. And it, it, it really felt like, you know, the white boy Rick story was my baby and it was part of the fabric of my being. And it, it felt like these people from Hollywood and Europe and New York swooped in and, you know, took my baby from, you know, my cradle and instead of taking it and putting it into their cradle, they decided to play soccer with it (laughs) (laughs) or, you know, play, play catch with it, you know, (laughs) on a, on a crowded freeway. (laughs) So it just, it it was good. It's good to get, it's good to get this kind of insight because I can just speak for myself as someone who, you know, I watch films and TV and teach classes on crime and media, crime and film but I don't know that I don't know how the sausage is made. Like I just see a movie and I like it or don't. We talk about it, we analyze it. So I think I think I, I appreciate your insight. I think audience members will too. That to hear like the insider baseball of how a movie gets made, yeah. what goes right, what goes wrong, and uh, so and it's just good timing that the documentary is doing well. So it's fun to talk about this. I think. And I think when you watch the doc, if you haven't seen the doc already, or you read about this case if you don't know about it already, you're going to ask yourself like. How could they mess up a Hollywood film about this story? You have to work really, really hard to have this thing tank the way it tanked. Yeah. I mean, you have to, like, actively try to make it a bad movie. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how you make that movie and make it boring. Out of anything, that movie should not have been boring. And that movie was a snore fest. Yeah, I remember you telling me that when the first time you saw it. All right, well, let's wrap up. So check us out on uh, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, like a therapy ho- Hopefully we'll be on uh, uh, Instagram soon, YouTube. We have more content coming up. Sometimes it'll just be us talking like now, but we'll bring back more guests too. So thanks for listening, everyone. OG Podcast, Jimmy Bucciolato signing off. Scott Bernstein. Out. Go see the doc. Thank you. <laughs>